Roxy, do you have a favorite origin story, like a book or movie? Ooh. Well, I'd say for a long time, my favorite was Christopher Nolan's Batman. Mm-hmm. It like introduced the darker spin on comic book superheroes. Uh, yes. The dark hero. This seems fitting for an Enneagram 4, not to mm, stereotype. Right. Is it not your favorite anymore? Well, I actually think I'm kind of over the angsty origin story. I want something a little less gritty for a change, mm-hmm. which I'm hoping that maybe this summer will be my new favorite with the new Barbie movie. I'm so excited about the new Barbie movie. It looks so fun in like a chaotic way. Oh, <laughs> total chaos, but not gritty chaos, like shiny plastic chaos. The best kind of chaos. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women living that Barbie life in gritty Gotham. I'm Upper West Side Roxy. And I'm Brooklyn Caitlin. So, yeah, we're both excited about the Barbie movie. Is it because you played Barbie as a child? Oh, man, did I ever. I really loved Barbie. Um, And I probably loved Barbie way too long. Like up until a couple years ago? Well, I actually was playing earlier today. (laughs) Yeah, I had like the whole like a big Barbie house and a bunch of different Mm -hmm. Barbies. I had like a Barbie that had red hair. So I was excited about that. Oh, and a couple cars, a Jeep yeah. and like a Corvette or something. And then we had, I don't think they were Barbie horses. They were like another toys kind of <laughs> they were like, like a Mattel knockoff. horses or something. Uh-huh. No, they were really cool. They were the horses that cowgirls got like out where I grew up. It was like you would buy them at the feed store. <laughs> and then I started babysitting these kids, all boys, when I was in maybe like sixth grade. And um, I convinced them that it was fine for them to play Barbies. So I got a few extra years out of playing Barbies. <laughs> These are for you, but also for me. <laughs> yeah. They they had different storylines, though. They were real interested in, like, rescuing Barbie a lot. Hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Gender roles. They start young. <laughs> yes. I would say I had, like, a dozen Barbies, which yeah. compared to some of the girls I was friends with was not a lot. It was, like, a modest amount. I think we had a car and some kind of home. Mm-hmm. I would say it was generally, I liked Barbie, but I wasn't, I didn't love Barbie. And later on, it was almost like I took pride in like, oh, I wasn't a Barbie girl. I know. I was embarrassed that I was. <laughs> and we could unpack where that is coming from. Well, I had the same feelings. I just like was ashamed that I had been so stereotypically girlish because I was like, oh, how how unfeminist of me to be into like the traditional Barbie toy that's very like the male ideal of a of a woman. Sexy, mm-hmm. feminine, blonde, impossibly perky boobs. Yeah. Really long legs. Exactly. <laughs> I think we've discussed that our Barbies bumped against each other a lot. Yeah. Not, not ours, <laughs> but <laughs> yours and mine. <laughs> had... no. So when you think about like that later shame that you or, or embarrassment that you mm-hmm. experienced thinking back to how much you loved Barbies. Where did you first learn what it meant to be like a feminist or a good feminist? What was your first exposure to that? I don't really remember. I feel like it sort of was a little bit in the air at the time, but maybe more around like women can be anything they want to be. Like 
I feel like there was a lot of messaging to young kids my age around like, mm-hmm. women can be astronauts, women can be scientists, women can be the president of the United States. Oop, nope, not yet. In theory. <laughs> Maybe someday. But I don't remember when and how and why I glommed on to like, I'm a feminist. Because I think most of like the view of feminism where I lived was not good. Right. Were you attaching to it because it was different or slightly rebellious from whatever was in the ether at the time? I mean, this was no the doubt. time of uh, n- maybe not the peak, but certainly the significant ramp up of Hillary Clinton bashing and oh fear. Gosh, right? and. She made her comment about, I'm not a woman who stays at home and bakes cookies for her husband, and then had to do this essentially a massive apology for offending stay-at-home moms and yes. all of the stay-at-home versus working mom debate was very yes. much in the air. And that was attached to feminism being seen as denigrating the traditional female role. Yeah, I think generally speaking, where I grew up, the idea of a feminist was still pretty much like a bra-burning, man-hating, probably a lesbian, and definitely <laughs> anti-family and all things wholesome. Yeah, I think the the fear about feminism creeping into the church and mm-hmm. denigrating like women's work. I mean, I didn't hear that at home, but still yeah, it was same. somehow in the, like, I must have heard it at church or I certainly learned about it more at college and realized, oh, there has actually been a Christian feminist movement that is nothing like these stereotypes. And then there has also been this major backlash against Mm -hmm. feminism within the conservative evangelical movement. And in fact, a whole organization was founded in the late 70s, early 80s to stamp out feminists from the evangelical church. Exactly. The Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood was like specific because like there were other ideas in the ether about what manhood and womanhood looked like. And there were Christians, evangelicals even, who maybe thought women could do a man's work. <laughs> yes, and that was too threatening to the reigning power structures of the evangelical world at the time. And it's really unfortunate that, that it would be well into college that I even learned that actually there was this very theologically robust, scripturally rooted understanding of feminism that wasn't anything like what feminism was being charged Mm -hmm. against. And that actually a lot of this had to come, a lot of this came down to power much more than theology, as it were. Or Mm. it was at least as much about power as it was about theology. I remember the sort of weird looks of confusion or bewilderment when I would say like, I'm an, I'm a Christian and a feminist and not just from the Christians, but like at college, when I would say it to Mm non-Christian friends, there was like very much a clear idea, even at the time that I was in college that like, you can't do that. You can't be a feminist and be a Christian. And I remember thinking like, why not? Why can't I? I'm going to do that. And I actually think I was somewhat naive in thinking that that was just like a choice that I got to make. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And not realizing that there was like a whole really deep history that was very like invested in making sure that I wouldn't do that or couldn't do that, which I started to run up against very quickly, even in my like college church. Mm hmm. This is one of the reasons I'm excited to have our guest on the show today, because his new book, 
tries to answer exactly why both of us had felt like being a Christian and being a feminist is not a real thing. To be a good Christian is to not be a feminist. His new book really digs into how and why feminists and many other groups became marginalized and excluded from the evangelical movement as we know it. Isaac B. Sharp is the author of the new book, The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians and the movement that pushed them out. There are folks who fought for different visions of what it meant to be evangelical, and they have been forgotten by the history books. And some of that is deliberate. The book is something of a historical origin story for the evangelical movement in the 20th century and who came to be in it and out of it. Our conversation with Isaac is coming up a bit later in the show. I have to say that one thing that really struck me about Isaac's book was his description of how important of a role polling and pollsters played in shaping evangelical identity in the U.S., Seems like a a world you're familiar with. You worked for one of the polling organizations he mentions many times in the book. You also have worked for more than one of the evangelical gatekeepers he talks about. It was like we were both in the rooms when it happened or where it had happened a generation or two before we got there. All right, let's back up a little bit. Give a little background here. Isaac argues in his book, as evangelicals sort of became something that the broader public was interested in, which especially kind of happened around like Jimmy Carter when the the first evangelical Mm -hmm. became president, who was a Democrat, if you can believe it. But um, people got interested. Like, who are these evangelicals? Who are the born-again Christians? Mm -hmm. And there were a couple of polling companies that had started to include questions that identified evangelicals. And so then those kind of became the de facto definitions, what the pollsters were using, because then that's what journalists could use. And so you ended up with these definitions that in some ways were made up, but also like have continued to be a real like point of contention within the evangelical movement. Like what does it really mean? And does it really mean these nine points or these four points that a polling group decided it did? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned four. I know we've <laughs> talked about the Bebbington quadrilateral. Oh, Bebby and his quad. But in fact, most people who self-identify as evangelical in the polls are not thinking about the Bebbington quadrilateral. When I was working at Barna, where we famously had nine theological points that you had to agree to in order to be an evangelical, that really narrowed the field. Mm-hmm. Even when I was there, like a big part of our ongoing conversation was like, is this really a good definition? And we did end up creating one with the editors at CT that was more closely based on the Bebbington Quadrilateral. Mm -hmm. Isaac talks a lot about Christianity Today magazine as Mm -hmm. one of these classic institutions that has tried over the decades to define evangelical boundaries. Mm -hmm. And when I first came to CT, I thought my primary job as an editor would be to produce a a really good magazine. Right. And I realized pretty early on that actually part of what editors at CT understand themselves to be doing is to also be holding evangelical boundaries, that there was Mm -hmm. a lot of boundary keeping Mm -hmm. in what I would say what and who we would publish and not publish. And some of those conversations would become contentious. Mm -hmm. 
And then I'd also wonder, is this just our like personal opinions back, you know, like going back and forth? Like, who's the arbiter? This all feels too personal in a way. Do you have a, do you have any particular like specific memories of that that stand out where you felt like, oh, okay, this is what we're doing right now? Well, a friend of ours and I, Sarah Pulliam Bailey, we overlapped at the magazine and we co-founded the women's website, Hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. It's a pun that I was very proud of at the time. And then as time goes on, I'm like, is that is that cringy? I don't know. But very, I was very you know, personally gratified by the work of helping to run that blog because yeah. I felt like, oh my gosh, this is... <laughs> this magazine is very male, ma- very male centric. Mm-hmm. It'd be great to have more women writers in the fold. And in my view, hermeneutics work was held up to greater scrutiny than other portions of what CT was doing because of the concern that it would be perceived as feminist, as if to have women writing is like inherently right. Feminist and to be feminist is to inherently be kind of bad or on the margins or playing with the boundaries. This is like smaller, but I remember one of my first jobs was actually at a Christian company that produced curriculum for churches. Group. Group. I remember. Um, I actually thought it was pretty cool that in our style guide, it was pretty specific. Like, try to refer to God as God, not Mm -hmm. he, as much as possible. But if it gets to be awkward, you can use he, but you can never use she. Right. And I was like, I was like, I thought it was cool that we at least were sensitive enough not to use it very often. But it was still this form of gatekeeping that it's like, okay, but if you have to, you can use he, but you certainly can't ever use she. Right. So I was at group and then I was at CT for a little bit. And then, and -hmm. then I went to Relevant Magazine, which. Uh, many of our listeners will know of as the the evangelical magazine for the young people and um, <laughs> for the youths. For the youths, we gotta get we gotta get the youths, the twenty somethings. Yes, and I kind of thought maybe it would be different, like it would be a little bit, dare I say, like progressive. And I think it was interesting to run into the same some mm-hmm. of the same boundaries or to feel like I couldn't push the boundaries anymore. Actually, sometimes even less than I could at CT. Um, and I remember really running into that uh, in two specific instances um, with Rachel Held Evans when she kind of came onto the scene mm-hmm. um, and there being like a lot of hand-wringing about mm-hmm. what of hers we could and couldn't publish. And then another instance that uh, you may remember... uh, I'm scared. (laughs) I'm scared. One of Twitter's most famous moments. Oh, yeah. The The farewell Rob Bell moment. (laughs) And Relevant had loved Rob Bell forever, right? Okay, so as a refresh for a lot of our listeners... Rob Bell published a book called Love Wins that was about, mm-hmm. it was basically, I would say, a, you know, kind of a Christian argument for universalism, mm-hmm. a provocative take on a theological issue. Mm-hmm. And shortly after the book was published and people started reading it, John Piper, founder of Desiring God, a neo-reformed darling, uh, tweeted, farewell, Rob Bell. Essentially, <laughs> like, determining, saying, Rob Mm -hmm. Bell's out. Out. Off the team. I, I, John Piper, am one of the boundary keepers. That's why I understand my role to be. 
I, I wield my power and authority over this movement <laughs> to determine who's in or out. And I'm saying he, not just this this concept is mm-hmm. out. This person is out of the camp. I said with what felt to me like a glee? lot of glee. <laughs> I was exactly oh. going to use that word. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So I guess we both felt that one. <laughs> there was a lot of satisfaction. It felt, there was a tremendous amount of self-satisfaction in not only coming up with a rhyme, mm-hmm. like a little pithy zinger, but also getting to be the one to determine like, yeah. you're out, dude. And I definitely think it was like, they'd just been waiting for their moment <laughs> with Rob <laughs> Bell because he, he'd he been pushing some boundaries and also was like the cool kid on the block, you know, like getting a lot mm-hmm. of attention. Oh, but up until that point, right? Like Rob Bell was a relevant darling. Mm-hmm. Like he was the he'd been on the cover. He was like right. kind of the he, poster boy in a lot of yes. ways for what relevant stood for. Right, right. But after that, like again, a lot of closed door meetings about what we could do with and with Rob Bell moving forward or about Rob Bell. Could we still publish him in the pages? Was that okay? Like and like we didn't for a while. Right, right. And I believe that every institution has the freedom to self-define. And some of that is the work of boundary keeping and just mm-hmm. saying this is what we're about and this is what we're not about. And at the same time, I didn't love how personal some of that boundary mm-hmm. keeping felt. Mm-hmm. When Rachel Held Evans died tragically and suddenly in 2019, mm-hmm. Christianity Today, I, I, I can say I know that there were editors who did want the magazine to to acknowledge her good work, even while saying we had significant, you know, we had differences or mm-hmm. her place was contested. And yet we can still affirm the worth and the dignity of this person who, by the way, is very popular among evangelicals, like mm-hmm. <laughs> whether or not you like it. My evangelical mom is always reading the new Rachel Held Evans book. Mm-hmm. But I hated that the magazine initially just wasn't going to acknowledge her death. We're like, we're not going to say anything about it. And then after getting pushback, including from me, perhaps with an mm-hmm. email to the editor in chief at the time, they ran one of the most offensive, like p- poorly worded, tone deaf, insulting this. responses to her death that was weirdly like more about her husband than it was about mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. And I hated that. I hated that the work of boundary keeping so often felt like dishonoring specific people who had great things to contribute, even if they weren't 100% on the the official evangelical train. Right. Like, where is the ability to say, we can agree with this person on some things, disagree with this person on other things, and still acknowledge the good work that they're doing? I remember when Rachel Held Evans died, and so many people felt this need to caveat their condolences. With like, well, we didn't agree with everything, but I'm sorry to see, you know, it was like this weird moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of us disagree with people, right? Like we don't have to like qualify all of our engagements with everyone with these disagreements. And I think that I only see it around certain issues, you know, the issues du jour. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And not, you know, it's not like, it's not always like, well, we didn't agree on infant baptism. But, 
And I I need everybody to know before I offer condolences. (laughs) To be clear, it honestly feels a little insecure. Yeah. As if to honor or acknowledge someone publicly as a person (laughs) or or as a fellow Christian, right, Mm -hmm. is to risk the perception that you're going down the slippery slope. Yeah. Of course, infant baptism used to be one of the big boundaries. Uh-huh. <laughs> in evangelicalism. I mean, Southern Baptists used to that, that used to be a big deal. And and I think maybe it still is, but <laughs> well, it's I think from like from CT's vantage or from a place like CT's vantage, what a lot of people considered a first degree or first first level issue has become mm-hmm. a secondary issue to right. say we can disagree on this theologically, but we're still in the same camp. We we're still Brothers and sisters in the Lord. Yes. Whereas, like, not too many decades ago, that was that was a do not cross this line boundary between denominations and groups. And I think that's part of what Isaac's book really gets into, is that in the lack of a pope, in the lack of, like, a central organizing institution, the boundaries have shifted and continue to shift, and new allies form and new enemies are made. And it's not, it's not a stagnant movement. Yes. Sounds like a good time to bring on Isaac. Up next, right after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. Check our feed for all the creeds. See, John Piper, I can rhyme too. (laughs) And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or review. It goes a long way toward getting the word out about the show. Here's a comment from a longtime listener about last week's episode on a very different topic. (laughs) With Jamie B. Golden, we talked about Botox and other facial procedures the listener said, I'd never been made to consider cosmetic procedures so thoughtfully. As a man, I don't know much about them, so I'd only thought of them as people just getting mutilated and hoping it turns out okay. <laughs> Great show. This was a hard subject for y'all to take on, and you were brave to be vulnerable while facing it. Kudos. Facing it. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> I see what he did there. You can also get in touch with us via email at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you. Today's guest is Isaac B. Sharp. Isaac is the author of the new book, The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians and the movement that pushed them out. Isaac is also a fellow New Yorker. He is a visiting assistant professor at Union Theological Seminary and the director of online and part-time programs there. Welcome to the show, Isaac. Good to see you, Isaac. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, excited uh, as well. This is also official publication day. So. That's right. Oh. Yes. Congratulations. It has been moving out and about. There's pre-orders have yeah. been available for a while, but mm-hmm. whatever the official publication day means, it is today. Well, thank you for spending it lucky with us. us. <laughs> yes. Well, to start, I'm going to paint a scene for you that kept coming up in my mind when I was reading the intro. Which, at the time, I was working for Barna Group, a social research firm that specializes in evangelicals. And this scene was when um, I was visiting Christianity Today. And the express purpose of this visit was that at Barna, we were trying to redefine, maybe, how we categorize evangelicals. And we were looking to the CT editors for some help with that. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> and this was after Caitlin worked there, I think. I don't remember that you were at CT for this. I don't remember that. But yeah. I just am here to say I did not unilaterally define evangelicals for Barna, just to have that on the, the record. I was really trying. Uh, I bring this up because I didn't realize I was such a part of a storied history of defining evangelicals. And Caitlin and I have both kind of been part of these gatekeeping organizations that you describe in your intro. Mm-hmm. So why have American evangelicals been so long obsessed with questions of identity and who's in and who's out? That is a fantastic question. And now with that opening, though, I feel like perhaps I should turn this around and start interviewing the two of you. I have lots of questions. That's a conversation for another day. Yeah. (laughs) I think drinks need to be a part of that. Yeah. Um, This question of the kind of obsession over gatekeeping and identity in the, in the evolution of 20th century evangelical identity in part, I think, is related to the uh, elusive essence of evangelicalism, of evangelical faith, evangelical religion. There's this background debate in folks who study evangelicalism or evangelicals that it's almost comically hard to define what exactly it is. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you do, you you start getting competing notions of how to slice the pie, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's theological, historical, sociological, some combination of all of the above, because it is this kind of nebulous transdenominational movement. Some people describe it as mm-hmm. a movement or a subculture or a religious tradition, which even if you go with religious tradition, that doesn't necessarily help us because what is a tradition, right? The issues of identity are almost baked in mm-hmm. because of this fact that uh, one of the ways I describe it, there's no evangelical pope. Mm-hmm. Because of that, because there is no official role uh, where you can go see who is card-carrying and who's not, you get these power struggles that are, are baked in over deciding who is in and who is out. Your book definitely highlights how difficult evangelical identity is. And you seem to be making the case that maybe the question isn't so much what is an evangelical based on specific theological criteria or Bebbington and his quadrilateral, but rather who is an evangelical and part of that is also who is not an evangelical. Yeah, that's a good way to describe a bit of what I'm doing. This Mm -hmm. interesting thing happens when people start talking about evangelicals and evangelicalism in the public, right? Let's say journalists or political talking heads, commentators, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it is that folks by now kind of take for granted when you say evangelicals, a lot of folks assume a reference for that, right? Like this is what we generally know what we're talking about. And part of what I was trying to do with the dissertation and book is foreground the fact that it's really contested and that there's in part a behind the scenes debate going on across the spectrum, internally, externally, evangelical, not secular historians about how to define this. Part of one of my main goals is to uh, highlight the fact that there is power involved, mm-hmm. that a power mm-hmm. analysis is crucial for all of those debates. That regardless of if it is a debate over evangelical theology and what is properly evangelical theology or not, that that is always fraught with power. And one of the central questions that I keep that I return to time and again in the dissertation of the book is, who is getting to do this defining? Mm-hmm. Oh, you just previewed my next question. <laughs> but I'll start with saying that you know, you make the case that one of the early boundary lines for evangelicals was biblical inerrancy. 
and that that belief in the Bible being the inerrant word of God, we can trust it, final authority, et cetera, that that belief really became a primary shaping force for evangelical identity. And the reason it did that is because of who interpreted it. You've already said there, there was no Vatican, there was no Pope to say this is the official interpretation. Mm-hmm. So who did end up getting to decide for evangelicals what interpretations of the Bible were correct and how did their voices get so loud? You hit on an incredibly important distinction there, too, with this question. So to the point around inerrancy, yes, this is often how evangelical institutions in the 20th century have defined what it means to be in or out. It's a recurring problem for this formation of evangelical identity in the 20th and 21st century in the U.S. context that you get folks who say, yes, I agree with this statement of faith on the authority of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do about divergent interpretations? Right. And it happens on any number of issues, theological issues like Calvinism or, you know, Arianism, mm-hmm. free will, on socio-political issues like can someone who affirms the inerrancy of Scripture vote for a Democrat and still be an evangelical around gender roles and gender identity? Mm-hmm. You have folks who say, I am evangelical and I affirm the authority of the Bible, whether it be inerrancy or infallibility, and yet... I interpret this one piece of the scriptural puzzle in a different way. Oftentimes in that case, it resorts to power struggles Mm -hmm. over who can most effectively popularize and disseminate their interpretation, but, and also who can effectively undermine their opponents. This was the move a lot of times by evangelical gatekeepers. If you disagree with my interpretation, you are obviously not an evangelical because if they affirm the authority of scripture, they would reach the same interpretation that I have. One of the things I wanted to do with this book is try to do justice to folks' stories. And you get these um, painful stories of folks who uh, participated as a part of a religious tradition their whole lives and thought they were in alignment uh, with the official or semi-official interpretation. And then something happened and they reached a different conclusion and all of a sudden they were marginalized as a heretic. And Mm -hmm. part of the argument of the entire book is that that has had a profound shape on evangelical identity. Mm So. Yeah, what you're describing within evangelicalism is essentially how boundaries get set. And you're saying that they get set by particular power plays. But I'm thinking about a lot of different religious groups. And I think most, if not all, religious groups would say, well, look, boundaries are part of what it means to be a person of religious conviction and identity, that you have to draw boundaries somewhere for the, for the term or the tradition or the movement, quote unquote, to have meaning. So, for example, I imagine mainline Christians, mainline Christian institutions would have excluded evangelicals or would exclude evangelicals on certain theological boundaries as well. So are evangelicals unique or uniquely bad <laughs> in, in their boundary setting, or are they just acting like what we expect religious groups to do? Yeah, this is, this is a great question, right? So definitely the case, an argument can be made that what is going on is the usual order of things for religious identity formation. At least with evangelical identity in the U.S. context, a lot of folks don't know that. Mm-hmm. It is often taken for granted that we know who the evangelicals are. And in a, a, another interview, I um, 
was able to thank uh, Molly Worthen for her blurb on the back because I think she really did capture one of my motivations, which was to say, history is contingent, right? Mm -hmm. Which is something Mm -hmm. that I think is an issue in contemporary discussions of evangelicalism. I do not challenge what the connotations are. I think evangelical identity has become something and it has these particular connotations. But I think that there are people who don't know that there were other kinds of evangelicals who fought for different visions. And I think there's value in telling the stories of dissenters. Yeah. So tell us one. There were some that I kind of already knew, like Jim Wallace and Ron Sider, but I was surprised by others. Is there one that you, you know, that as you were working or unearthing that really like surprised you or you feel like would be very emblematic of the project? So until I had started the dissertation research, I had no idea there was this like sub movement of self-identified black evangelicals back in the sixties. It was an example of one of the stories that I happened upon that prompted me to ask, how is it that I have never heard this story? Hmm. And how it is, I think is part of the argument of the book that there are folks who fought for different visions of what it meant to be evangelical, who dissented from prevailing theological cultural trends, and they have been forgotten by the history books. Mm -hmm. And some of that is deliberate. You know, when somebody runs afoul of the evangelical gatekeepers, what happens? They pull their books from the Lifeway shelves or whatever. And Mm. that's a powerful thing. Yeah, I mean, I think I I knew of some of the figures in the Black evangelical story because of having worked at Christianity Today. But what is particularly striking about that chapter is that, you know, for some of the other groups that you look at, feminists, progressives, gay Christians, gay evangelicals, some Christians would say, well, those were about theological debates. But when it came to Black evangelicals, there was so much theological alignment. Mm -hmm. You couldn't fault these Black evangelical leaders for stepping outside. They were on board, and also because of their social location, because of egregious racial discrimination, the history of segregation, they were concerned about social and political flourishing for Black people in America. And I think that just highlights, to your point, Isaac, that we want to say it's about theology, but in this case, it is it is about racism, which highlights what you are saying about, we think it's about theology, it's actually about power. Yes, and... and <laughs> <laughs> you, I you take it you agree <laughs> with my summary of your book. No, right. Yes. <laughs> it is the case, and to take a slightly more generous reading, it is at least also about power. Right. Mm. I tried not to too much get into the sticky, thorny stuff of saying this is obviously theology and this is obviously politics, racism, power. And mm-hmm. more so, let it be the case that even when we are saying this is a theological in-group, out-group question, that there are power dynamics there and that those power mm-hmm. dynamics are worth interrogating for any number of reasons, one of which is that it has very consistently been the case in these stories that the people who were saying it's all about theology are white dudes. (laughs) (laughs) And at least being able to 
acknowledge that perhaps their own power and bias would come into play mm -hmm. has been very rare in that historical record of, of all of these wranglings over evangelical identity. And the Black Evangelicals chapter, I think, Caitlin, you identified that as a prime example of that. Another, though, that I think relates in some ways is the evangelical feminist chapter insofar as there were women who this was a fine line I had to walk to because there were some folks in that chapter who would have been reluctant to even identify with the label feminism, but they made arguments who say, I am a woman and my gifts are not honored in evangelical spaces, even mm -hmm. though I check all of your boxes. Mm -hmm. And then when I want to serve as leader or something like that, all of a sudden my faith is called into question. <laughs> mm -hmm. This question of power and social location is just um, so often uninterrogated in these histories of evangelicalism that I at least hope this is, you know, prompts some interesting conversations. One thing you noted earlier was saying that it can be sort of tempting from our location now to say, oh, this was inevitable. This is just always what evangelicals would look like. Reading through the book, I got sort of teary and mad a couple times because I was like, it could have been different. Like evangelicalism didn't have to be conservative or so white or so rigid on gender roles and sexuality. Or do you think it was inevitable? <laughs> like, are there some critical junctures you identified in your work where it maybe could have gone another way? Yes, there are these stories there and these junctures where you look at it and you say, you know, maybe something could have been slightly different. And I think the evangelical feminism chapter is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. mm. The rise of so-called complementarianism was explicitly predicated by folks who were trying to eradicate evangelical feminism. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. There are feminist sensibilities spreading in evangelical circles, and you get these figureheads who are explicit. This is not even me conjecturing. They explicitly right. say, we saw feminism spreading and decided that something had to be done about it. And they worked as hard as they could to stomp it out and marginalize it. Do you think we're at any kind of an inflection point now? You know, I look around and I see all of this, like, everybody's deconstructing, there's ex-evangelicals, there's like movements of third way churches, not even to mention like the nuns and the disaffiliated. I feel like your book would suggest that the history says evangelicals will double down on the boundaries, but I don't know. Do you think this, this moment might be any different, that it might expand instead of contract? This is a fascinating question and is one of those, yes, that's absolutely dangerous in a particular kind of way, because as soon as I go on record with a prediction, there will be someone two, three, four, five years down the road who will be all too happy to say, oh, look how, look how far this idiot missed that prediction. I hope in two to five years, people are still listening <laughs> to this episode of the podcast. <laughs> don't, don't overestimate our influence. You never know. In the conclusion, I do a little bit of this. It feels like there is something going on with folks questioning this allegedly purely theological criteria they have always been given to say, this is what you believe as an evangelical. If you're a part of this community, this is how we define it. There are folks, I feel like, and it is partially but not purely generationally mm -hmm. driven, 
of younger folks who are saying, you told me X, Y, Z my whole life. And then when it came time for ABC political, social, whatever movement issue, mm -hmm. it felt to me being young evangelicals, ex-evangelicals, post-evangelicals, like you went back on everything that you had taught me mm -hmm. or that if I found different implications of those theological beliefs that all of a sudden you were telling me I was going to hell or I was a heretic or whatever. Mm -hmm. There is, I feel like, a moment of that happening. The predictive piece, though, that I, I end up, I think, going for in the conclusion is, and yet, at the same time, the people who are behind the levers of power in these evangelical institutions are sensing that and doing everything in their power to reinforce and double down on the kinds of gatekeeping that I describe in the book, and explicitly so. Now, I recently saw somebody suggesting that the, the dynamics have changed with things like social media, right, where it is harder to silence dissenters, mm -hmm. which makes for interesting possibilities, I think, in the, this kind of like future of, of the evangelical movement. But and also those with the institutional power and at the top of most of these institutions that would be the gatekeeping institutions with lots of money behind them are doubling down on a certain definition of what it means to be in and out. That's an uphill battle for anybody who is interested in trying to reform that, as perhaps you all could attest to. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us and for talking to us more about your book, which congratulations on the pub date. Yes, congratulations. Thanks so much. This was fun. We will hopefully talk again soon about any and all of the above. Sounds good. So when I was reading Isaac's book, I kept kind of wondering, like, is my church evangelical or are we out? Say more. Well, you know, like a, a lot of people in our church, in my church, grew up evangelical, are evangelical. We, mm -hmm. um, There's still a lot of ways it feels evangelical, but it's also... Fantastic worship service. Yes. But we also do communion every week and we go through like the Eucharistic rite from the Book of Common Prayer. And I would mm -hmm. put us in the camp of a lot of the things that Isaac says puts you out of the evangelical camp, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> particularly around like... LGBTQ affirmation and women's ordination, basically all of the things he said. So are we evangelical or not? And do we want to be evangelical or not? It's interesting to me that even when, you know, many people think of themselves as beyond or post whatever kind of faith community, the evangelical faith community that formed them, mm -hmm. that question, am I an evangelical, still feels somewhat urgent to figure out. Mm. And and existential. I mean, I think that's the right word because is there a sense that something could be lost if you're no longer evangelical? That's a good question. I think there's still something for a lot of people, and maybe I would have put Rachel Held Evans in this camp, of like, how do we save this? How do we remake or continue to be part of this tradition that we grew up in that is our history and our culture in ways that go way beyond just faith, but are actually like community and family and traditions. Like, how do we stay connected to that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also embrace 
these values that we have that feel outside of that camp. At the end of the day, I want to believe and extend the benefit of the doubt that Rachel was actually writing from a place of maybe heartbrokenness or heart sickness. I want to believe that even when she was critical of the evangelical movement, it was coming from a place of wanting it to live up to its name, to live Mm -hmm. up to the best elements of the tradition and what it professes. I think that's it right there. It doesn't have to be this way. There is there is a value system within evangelicalism that could embrace all of these things. And I think that's a little bit of the work of Isaac's book of of pointing out that like all of these moments were not necessarily inevitable. Like all of these mm-hmm. all of these rejections or expulsions didn't have to happen. There were people within evangelicalism that did believe these things. And did so within that tradition. And there was a decision by the tradition in some ways to say that's not going to be part of our tradition. Well, I guess there there is something to be said about like a church like yours, Roxy, saying, no, we are we still are going to claim the evangelical label and we'll we're still going to claim to be in the family because we belong here too. Hmm. You actually can't kick us out. You can't make us feel on the outs. Yeah, I mean TBD, I guess. <laughs> Let's just end on that super definitive <laughs> note. TBD, I TBD, guess. TBD, I guess. <laughs> Maybe sort of to be determined. All right. Save by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Julia Wyndham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. When I was working at Barna, where we famously had nine theological points that you had to agree to in order to be an evangelical, that really narrowed the field. <laughs> <laughs> and and, I'm, and we're going to come back to the nine because I want to I want to hear what they are. Mm, could could we not? Because <laughs> I might oh. embarrass myself by forgetting a few. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, 